I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart. Join Hoda Kotb for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zivi. I'm the host, Zivi Owens. I am an author. My latest is blank, pub date March 1st, a novel. I'm also a podcaster, obviously, a publisher, a bookstore owner, and so much more. If you love books, you're in the right place. In fact, we call it the Zivyverse, or really, the LA Times called it the Zivyverse, and we're going with it. Go to ZivyOwens.com to learn more and follow me on Instagram at ZivyOwens. Susanna Breslin is the author of Data Baby, My Life in a Psychological Experiment. Susanna is a freelance journal and a Forbes.com senior contributor. From 2018 to 19, she was the Lawrence Grauman Jr. Postgraduate Fellow at UC Berkeley's Investigative Reporting Program. Her reporting and essays have appeared in The Atlantic, Slate, Harper's Bazaar, The Daily Beast, Salon, Newsweek, The Guardian, and Variety, among other media outlets. She holds a BA in English from UC Berkeley and an MA from the Program for Writers at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She lives in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Susanna. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your book, Data Baby, My Life in a Psychological Experiment. Thanks so much for having me, Zippy. It's great to be here. My pleasure. Um, Please tell listeners about your book, about the experiment, about your parents ending up, just the whole thing. So Data Baby is a memoir, and I grew up in Berkeley, And my father was an English professor at UC Berkeley, and the university ran a preschool where the kids who went there were also studied by professors and researchers at the university studying early childhood development. 
So it just so happened that when I started preschool there, I became one of over 128 kids who were followed for 30 years. And basically, the researchers who were studying us were trying to figure out, if you study a child, can you predict who that child will grow up to be? At the time, there was this crisis in psychology about whether or not personality traits were real. Did, do people actually have a distinct personality, or are they just responding to the circumstances in which they find themselves? And the only way to sort of identify that and find out if personality remained relatively stable over time was by following people from childhood into adulthood, which is exactly what they did. And did, when did you know that this had happened? So I'm not sure the analogy that I've given before is it's kind in my mind, it's kind of like being adopted for somebody who always knew they were adopted. They don't remember having like a sit down conversation. It was just kind of always there. I don't remember a time in my life when I wasn't involved in the study. But when I was a preschooler, when I was around four years old, I wasn't aware of what was actually going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. So that preschool was designed essentially for studying children. It had mirror twin classrooms. And between those classrooms, there was an observation gallery where people could essentially hide and watch what we were doing. And there was a transparent screen that hid them, but they could also hear what we were saying. And then later we were assessed on campus in Tolman Hall, which was where the psychology department was. And those experiment rooms had one-way mirrors, although to me they just appeared to be mirrors. I think sometime around, you know, seven or eight years old, I kind of started to figure out these adults are interested in me and there's a little bit something more going on here than I might have thought. And what is your view on whether personality is a stable trait? You know, it's been, I'm not a scientist. I don't have a PhD. I'm not a psychologist or a researcher. And so that was sort of one of the challenges of writing the book. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. I'm not an expert, but I've had experts studying me. Researchers come from the premise that what is in front of them is quantifiable, and I think what I ultimately took away from investigating my past and the story behind the study uh, once I grew up was that there is something about people that's beyond science that can't simply be reduced to something that is quantifiable. We were essentially, as a cohort, a data set. And I certainly like to think I'm something more than, you know, a bucket of data. I think you're more than a bucket of data. Well, thank you. That's right. <laughs> I was a psychology major in college, and I went through hours and hours of coding children's behavior. I was doing eating and weight research, but it was uh-huh. like the snack of an actual study. Like they were doing a study on something else, but they had this free moment where they gave the kids snack. And instead of just throwing that footage away, the eating and weight department was like, oh, wait, let's study that and see if there are any links to it. All to say, I spent a lot of time coding for every different behavior. So I, I am aware aware of the, the ins and outs of, of studies and psychological experiments and uh, and all of that. And to be in one for so long, oh my gosh, that's a lot. It was. It was, you know, when I was an adult, I would tell people I was in the study and people would always be like, oh, that's really strange or that sounds so weird or why did your parents let you do that? When did you find out all those questions? And it was always so normal to me. And I had I was a journalist for many, many years before 
I even really strongly considered writing about this. It was so much a part of me. Mm-hmm. And I think in a lot of ways actually shaped me that it didn't seem unusual to me. But I understand it seems weird to grow up and have people like spying on you. And one thing that was weird when I started doing the research into the story was you know, finding out that I had a number. My number in the study is 758. And that was just jarring. It was kind of like, am I this number? I had a very sort of romantic vision of what the study was. They made me feel special. I felt like I was part of something that was bigger than myself. It gave me a sense of meaning in my life. And to sort of reconcile that with being a number and looking at yourself as like part of a mathematical calculation took some mental gymnastics, you could say. Have you watched the reality show Squid Game? So in the reality show, everybody gets a number. That's why I'm bringing it up. Okay. So you, wear, you all wear the same thing and everyone gets assigned a number and they don't use your names ever. And so it's like, oh, remember that guy 58 who got eliminated last week? And, yeah. da, da, da. and you see how it makes people feel when they're all, you lose your identity, right? How do you maintain right. an identity when you're just another number? Okay, but your book is not just about the experiment. It's not all science. You go into a lot about your personal life and everything. And can I read like a small section of it? Is that okay? Of course. Um, Okay, this is from chapter six. You said, three weeks later in mid-September, I was on a plane heading west. As I watched the verdant landscape slipping away far below me through the oval window, it seemed like I could see things more clearly from this bird's eye point of view. Bird, that's it. I was a bird in a gilded cage. I had all the trappings of the good life, a house, a partner, a BMW, and a three-car garage. And once I had those things, I didn't want to lose them. For decades, I had struggled to take care of myself. It was hard to picture giving up everything. You'll be fine, I could hear some wiser version of of me telling myself. I knew if I left my husband, I could take care of myself. But what if the breast cancer came back? Better the devil you know than the devil you don't, I considered. But what if the devil kills me? So far, my husband had only threatened to hit me, but what if he actually did? What then? My goodness. So. Yeah, I, um, I waited a long time to get married. My, you know, I grew up in Berkeley. My mother was a feminist and my father left her when I was 10. And she told me over and over again, don't get married. Hmm. Men want you to take care of them, but they don't want to take care of you. And I think for her, having children was an impediment to her professional ambitions. She was an English professor, but my father's career as an English professor as well was more successful than hers. And I think she felt like she paid the price of being a mother and a wife. And then he left. And so I always had that voice in the back of my head, essentially saying, you can't trust men. I you know, it was in relationships, but I didn't get married until I was 43. So when I was 43, I was on a dating app and I met a man and we fell in love and I got married in Vegas nine days after we went on our first date. So it was very much like a whirlwind romance. Um, and then four days after that, I was diagnosed with breast cancer doing during a routine mammogram. So it was At the time, I actually felt like I was being punished for betraying what my mother had told me to do. It seemed very clear cut. So the honeymoon was over immediately and it was challenging to walk through that breast cancer process and figure out how to be a wife and 
still retain my sense of self at the same time. You know, ultimately the marriage was not what I thought it would be. And I found myself, we married in Illinois, but moved to Florida and found myself in the role of an executive's wife living in a house in a planned community where all the houses looked very similar. And there was like a fake lake behind our house that would like periodically shoot up this stream of water. And it was so far from where I had started in, you know, Berkeley is amazing history and this crazy creative place. And I was studied when I was a kid. My parents were English professors. There was this sense of, you know, you're exceptional in some way. And I felt at that time when I was married that I was simply like a supporting actor in somebody else's life. And so the part of what I wanted to understand, you know, I had survived cancer was like, well, what is my purpose here? Is this who I'm actually supposed to be? And that's part of why I got interested in the study and asking myself, well, who did they think I would be? You know, did they think I was going to win a Nobel Prize or did they think I was going to end up, in, you know, sort of rotting my brain in suburbia? And ultimately, that investigation into myself was not compatible with the marriage that I was in. And essentially, I sort of exploded my life ultimately and, and got divorced and pursued the story that I tell in the memoir, which ultimately took me back to Berkeley for a year where I was a fellow uh, at the investigative program at the university, trying to understand how the study, I think, played ultimately a role in shaping the person I became in ways that I didn't fully understand until I started looking into it. So you would recommend waiting more than nine days to get married or you would not recommend it? Well, I've said before, it's a great story until it isn't, right? <laughs> um, I'm not, I know I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. I wouldn't do it again, but you know, people do it. People have arranged marriages. You know, I haven't lived a super normal life and I do kind of pride myself on throwing myself into things that didn't work out. You know, the, the process of writing the book and publishing it is hard for me because I find so much of it embarrassing recounting my failures publicly is not like on my list of things that I love doing. And there's a lot of failing and flopping and insecurity and missteps in that story. But I have tried throughout my life to, to do what I think to be brave. My mother lived with a lot of fear and inhibition and resentment and paralysis. And I always just wanted to be courageous as a journalist or, you know, in the things that I pursued. I don't want to come down too hard on some of the crazy decisions that I've made. And I was totally <laughs> just joking around. Oh, I know, I know. Look, we all make so many, I've made so many bad decisions. I mean, we all, that's part of life, right? We, we do these things, you know. I can almost understand, not almost, I can understand why you would do it that way though, because if you're so, if you've been so cautioned against making a mistake or doing something wrong, it's, it's like you have to just like blindfold and like run through the rain. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I'm going to make a mad dash for it, right? It, it makes sense in a way. Like you, you either have to do it that way or else you'll you'll be in your head about it for so long. And right. So yeah. I get it. I get it. I, I, I tend to overthink things mm -hmm. or act very impetuously. I'm sort of good at the polars and not so great at like the balanced approach. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I totally understand. I make a lot of decisions and I'm like, yes, let's do this right now. And then eventually, I have to be like, okay, let me think about the ripple of that. <laughs> 
Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic Tongue Twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. So, how is your health now? Great. Totally fine. It's been like 11 years, I think. Okay, good. Knocking wood for you. <laughs> Not wanting to put your mistakes on display doesn't necessarily <laughs> jive well with putting out a memoir at all. No. <laughs> it's like part of the territory. Did you think about sort of writing this for yourself and not publishing it or leaving chunks out or anything like that? It's a good question. You know, I've said I became a writer because it was the only thing I did well. I love writing. It's been my career. And the idea of writing for something the idea of writing something for myself actually seems like sort of a waste of time. And I do like to write and share. I think I just didn't realize how vulnerable a position writing a memoir would put me in and how hard that would be for me. One thing I talk about in the book is there's a lot of pressure on me growing up. The study made me feel special, but it also kind of made me feel like I had to perform. My parents thought I was smart and had hopes that I would be as sort of successful as they were. And so I put a lot of pressure on myself and I'm very intolerant of any sort of imperfections that I have. A memoir is a kind of parade of imperfections, and it's about sharing your feelings, which is um, not something I'm good at at all. You know, being studied or having the, the type of mother I had who was intellectual and distant doesn't make you into a person who's good at sharing their feelings. Mm-hmm. And there is a kind of way in which I tried to respect that in myself in the memoir. And I almost have a journalistic relationship to myself in my story. Um, so it's, I think it's not a sort of typical memoir in that way. I, I have a complicated relationship to memoirs. I think they can be kind of like just a vomiting of feelings, often written by women for women. I don't really like the idea personally, that women are sort of supposed to be relegated to a literary genre that's all about feelings. And maybe men are the ones who are better suited for like telling the stories of the world. Mm. And so I sort of struggled with a straitjacket as I experienced of writing a memoir. And how could this be about something more than simply my own interior? Because I have something to say 
about the world that goes beyond like how I'm feeling or my personal journey. Right. There's a line between sort of nonfiction and memoir, right? Like reported stories and, you know, it's, you know, science, it, it, nonfiction books with you as a subject. That's a very different book than a memoir or what you think of traditionally as a memoir. Like, are there any books that when you were writing yours, you were like, well, I just want it to be like this one. <laughs> you know, I, I love my, one of my favorite books is Marguerite Duras, The Lover, where she, I think she it published it or wrote it when she was 70. And the opening scene about is her encountering a man when she's older and he looks at her and says, I like the way you, I'm paraphrasing terribly, but he's basically saying, I like the way your face is better now. He says, it's ravaged. So there's this kind of brutal honesty. She's muddying the, it's based on a true story, but do they sell it as a novel or a memoir? Like, I don't even know. You know, a memoir is, a story the author tells you about themselves, but is it the whole story? Is it the most true story? And what is the true story? I prefer stories that understand the limitations of what we consider to be true. Love that. So tell me about the process of writing the book. Was it emotional? What was it like on a day-to-day basis? It was just terrible. I mean, it's just, I feel like I should lie, right? Like, Don't I lie. Like, no. But I feel like when I'm supposed to give an answer, I'm like, oh my God, it was like, I really had to go deep, you know? And I really had to like connect with my core. And then I found like, when I started telling my story, I just like really came into myself and then I was done and then it was published and then it like came out. I was like, oh my God, like I am now a fully actualized human being. That was not my experience of it. It was just agonizing. It it never got easy. I had really intense migraines, I think from the stress. One, it went on for a really long period of time. I felt like I didn't have an ending. And the book came out in late last year in 23, but in 2022, in June, my mother died. And I had become estranged from her by that point. But she kind of gave me, in dying, a third act. Mm. And, you know, we always had, like, a curious bond. I was born on her birthday, her 30th birthday. And when she died, I think it allowed, it kind of freed me up to tell my own story as if it was my own. You know, I think the fact that we kind of shared a birthday, it was like my own birthday is not quite my own. My story is not quite my own. And when she kind of psychically got out of my way, I was able to move forward on the book that I, in a way that I hadn't. In addition, I hired a freelance editor who was just amazing. Petronelle Van Arsdell is her name, who I started calling her my book doula. And in a way, she was like a substitute mom for the baby I was delivering, which was my book. And being able to ask for and get the help that I needed was impactful. And the book would not have ever been finished without that help that I was able to ask for and get, which I think was something that was hard to do. I'm so sorry (laughs) about your experience. (laughs) feel like I'm such a complainer, but... No, don't be silly. I mean, it's hard. It's all hard. It's not roses and rainbows. You know, it's, this is complicated terrain to navigate. And it's just so nice to hear the truth, right? That it's not always perfect. It's not always easy. So you might as well tell it. And I'm sorry 
about your mom and her passing. I'm Thank glad you. it enabled you to figure out a way through, but sorry that you had to go through that as a means to an end. But I also understand that. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? But don't just say not to do it. Don't <laughs> oh, write a memoir ever. Don't um, ever write a memoir. Turn off this I, podcast immediately. You know, another thing that complicated my own creative process is I've been a freelance journalist for over 20 years, and I'm kind of a lone wolf operator uh, professionally. And I like to sort of live on the fringe. This book was different in that in that regard in that it had an agent and I sold it on a proposal. And so the creation of the book itself took place in part within the capitalist machinery of book publishing, which I did not feel was particularly compatible with the creative process. And what I would encourage writers to do is to find their voice outside of the economic system if they can. Either find other ways to make money so you can write as you wish, or you can do what I've done, which is sort of bifurcate your writing abilities, which I have, you know, a lot of a set of writing that I do journalistic or copywriting or whatever that I do for money where I make compromises and collaborate. But then I also have my own work, which is fiction or different types of essays or what I write in my blog, where I'm writing just for myself. And I think writing for the market, writing for the audience is not writing what you want to write. That's what writing for the market and writing for an audience or writing for somebody you think might read it who lives inside of your head is not, that's not you. Then you're, you're just figuring out what somebody else wants. And women already have enough of that in their lives, right? Who do, who do my parents want me to be? Who does my spouse want me to be? Who do my friends want me to be? And I think I would like to hear more stories from women that are creative and original and are just born from that woman rather than in service of giving something else to somebody else. Hmm. But interestingly, you said it might seem like a waste if you just wrote for you at the beginning. I know. I'm incredibly contradictory. So I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. I I mean, I I will write for myself, but then I will publish it. I'll Mm -hmm. publish it like online. Mm -hmm. But I just, I don't want to write for myself and put it away in a drawer. No, I get it. I think the creative process should take place outside of the market, ideally. Yes. Then you can put it in the market. Then you put it in. Yes. Yes, I got it. (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you so much, Susanna. I really appreciate you coming on. Congratulations on your book. And for your sake, I'm glad it's done. (laughs) Thank you so much, Zibby. I really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 